0: So, continuing on with the book of Mark, today we come to the next passage of what we left off, and that would be Mark chapter 1, verses 12 to 15. So, as we turn there, let us stand for the reading of God's word, please. Mark chapter 1, verses 12 through 15. And the word reads, The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God And saying, "The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel." This is the word of the Lord. All right, let us pray. Heavenly Father, I ask that as we look at this passage in the Book of Luke, that you would be gracious to give us understanding, to let us humble ourselves into instruction, into correction. And maybe to rebuke, Lord, that we may not be like the fools that hate instruction, but that we would be wise to hear the counsel of your word this morning. In Jesus' name we ask this, amen. All right, let us be seated. Okay, so we go to the book of Mark, working our way through chapter one, and this is the third message in uh, this book of Mark. Our plan is to go through the whole book verse by verse. So last time we were here, we went through the passage where Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist. So let's recap a couple of um, what the plot was there so that we could get a little bit of context going into this passage. So the introduction of Jesus in the previous passage basically consisted of two main things. First, John the Baptist coming on the scene, declaring the proximity and the coming of Jesus right right after him to begin his actual public earthly ministry. And John the Baptist claimed that the kingdom of God is at hand, so therefore repent. And he was offering and proclaiming a baptism of repentance, warning of the judgment to come for the unrepentant. So that was the first thing, John the Baptist introducing Jesus with a baptism of repentance. And secondly, Jesus comes to the Jordan River where John the Baptist was uh, baptizing people. And he got baptized by John the Baptist. When Jesus came up from his baptism, God the Father makes an appearance there with his uh, audible voice and recognizes Jesus as the anointed one, as the Messiah, and declares him as king. He gives him his full authority and approval. He says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. And then the Holy Spirit des- descends upon Jesus like a dove. So we see the presence of the triune God very vividly here. So a couple of things to remember about the aspect of... In which Jesus was introduced by John the Baptist and then by being baptized and being declared Messiah and King. Jesus and John the Baptist had minimal interaction that we know of here in scripture before this event or even after. Although they were cousins, there's not much details about their personal interaction aside from this particular event. I think this is the one event that we get the most detailed about. And also, let's remember that Jesus was baptized because He needed repentance? No, right? We went through that. Jesus did not need repentance because He lived a perfect life. He was not in need of repentance. But rather, we went through the passage and we explained that Jesus was baptized because in His perfect obedience, He wanted to fulfill all righteousness so that we the ones who need repentance, the ones who need representation before God to be blameless, that's why Jesus comes and obeys and submits 100% to all of the commands of God the Father. The baptism of John, of repentance being one of them. So Jesus submits himself to that to fulfill our righteousness as he stated. And... We went through the explanation of how that could be confusing. Even John the Baptist was taken aback saying, wait a minute, like, if anything, Lord, you need to baptize me. Like, I can't baptize you. And yet, we concluded that Jesus, as an act of love and grace and mercy, decides to baptize, to get baptized in order to be obedient. And it showed us the importance of The obedience that we must have, even as Jesus was obedient, not needing to do this, but He did it for us. And then, once we realize that we are the ones who need that perfect representation of Jesus, we acknowledge that we cannot, we cannot attain that perfect representation by representing ourselves. It is just not possible. and that's why Jesus submitted himself to fulfill all the commandments, including baptism, for our benefit. All right So why do we go through that over and over and just generally speaking, why do we come back to talk about Jesus again? Well, because that's what we do. that's what we need. and as people that by nature, human nature tends to have us go astray easily, right we need constant reminder, like a vessel that leaks. We need to be filled again and again and again to learn about Jesus. So now after that scene is gone, the next act, so to speak, here in the story that Mark is telling us, after his public proclamation and introduction, Jesus now is taken into the wilderness, being put into a very heavy trial. So this is where the text picks up today and let's start in let's dig into it so verse 12 says the spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness let's remember that the style that mark is writing is very fast-paced he uses the word immediately just under a dozen times in the first chapter alone so Marcus, very fast paced, he wants to move from one point to the other. And he skips a lot of the detail that the parallel accounts give us. Right? And that's part of that reason is because he's writing to a very specific audience. He's writing to a primarily Gentile population in the region of Rome at that time. So it says that the, the Spirit immediately drove him. And then we see the urgency that, Mike, that Mark uh, brings us when he says that the Spirit drove him into the wilderness. Let's take a brief second to look at what that means. First of all, it says that the Spirit drove him into the wilderness. The word wilderness in biblical biblical language, does not have a connotation of comfort or of a retreat to be isolated and have some time to yourself to reflect upon life in the comfort of a uh, you know of, of a hotel of a of a resort no nothing like that right sometimes even our our Christians. Uh, Christian circles and community and culture at large, we tend to go on these retreats and we get all fired up and excited, but we really don't suffer, right? I mean, by what I know, it's actually pretty comfortable. You get to eat really well. You, you, know, you get encouragement from, from uh, guest speakers, keynote speakers, but we're going to see a very different story of how Jesus went into the wilderness, This word wilderness occurs in scripture in a variation of the renderings about 300 times. And wilderness is actually a formative phrase in the Hebrew culture, the concept of wandering in the wilderness. Why? Because it has an implication of wild landscape that is not apt for human living. And it reminds the Jewish mind of an endless search of the promised land. Before they got to the promised land. They wandered and wandered in the wilderness. But also. It is a place where encounters with God happen. In the wilderness. So let us not have the westernized idea. That if when we say in our Christianese sometimes, if the Spirit wills or if the Lord wills, is because we have this picture that the Spirit will lead us into a rosy and easy time, free from any troubles, so that we can just declare that, hey, God is good. You know, He he led me into something that's going to be the, the path of least resistance. And hey, praise God for that. Right? So we're going to see the example of Jesus, how it was pretty different. So now he's taken into the wilderness. And we know that the reason why he goes into the wilderness is in order for him to be tempted. How do we know that? Because verse 13, the next verse right up after 12, tells us. Uh, just a quick word, going back a little bit about the concept of the Spirit driving Jesus to the wilderness. And we have a maybe a false idea that the Spirit will always lead us into comfort or health, wealth. You know, part of the false prosperity gospel. So let's be careful. This, this is sort of a reminder for us to not let the false notion of a comfort prosperity gospel creep in. Into our worldview of, of what the gospel really is. So we need to be reminded that trials and tribulations are ways in which we can and must come running seeking God. After all, remember the wilderness is actually not only a place of trial, but it's a place where God meets his people. So, why would the Spirit lead Jesus into the wilderness? we will see that this is actually in preparation for the work to come, for the mission that Jesus came to fulfill. This is a trying time of isolation in which Jesus is tempted and He fasts for 40 days and 40 nights. Alright, so let's take a look at verse 13. It says, "...and He was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan." And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. So we must remember that just prior to this incident in the wilderness, Jesus was coronated as king, affirmed by the Father. And now, instead of enjoying the, life, the lifestyle of what we think a king would live, you know, of power, dominion, luxury, comfort, having servants so that he can, you know, enjoy his life and rule. This, the kingship of Jesus, starts off actually on quite the contrary way, in which Jesus is now put into this heavy trial of temptation in the wilderness. And it says that there, there's wild animals, which gives a picture of, An isolated place where humans typically would not go, at least by choice. But nevertheless, the angels ministered to him during and after this trial experience. So in his humanity, we need to remember that that Jesus was tested and tried in his humanity by Satan. Many times I have heard the objection by critics by skeptics saying that the trial of Jesus was basically nothing that we should give him too much credit for. And what do they mean by that? The claim goes something like this. Well, if Jesus, if you claim that Jesus is God and he was tempted, I mean, it's no big deal. He's God. You know, that's not going to do anything to him. He's... Because- we would expect for him not to sin or not to err. So what's what's the problem here? There's really nothing to to see here. There's, There's nothing to give him credit about. However, the fact that Jesus is God in flesh is only half of that story. Last time we also saw that Jesus is not only divine in his divine nature, But he also has a human nature. He was born of a woman. He was born under the law. So in his humanity, he has the same qualities and needs of a human being, just like you and I had. And in the Gospel of Mark, we will see how the humanity of Jesus is brought upon us so that you could see That Jesus was 100% human. He wept. He mourned. He was hungry. He was tired. He was distressed. So if somebody would have that objection, which actually at the surface, it looks like a valid objection. This really wouldn't make Jesus stumble because he... If you claim he's God, then there's nothing to worry about. He's going to make it just fine. So in that, we need to remember that Jesus also had 100% human nature, flesh and blood up on this earth. And when he was put through these trials, he was actually in the state of humanity as you and I are. And in that, in his humanity, he did not sin. That's what we need to remember. So, as I was preparing for these, I came across a a passage that actually really reminds us that Jesus being in this earth, he didn't take advantage of any quote-unquote superpowers or grasped into His divinity in order to make it through this paths. And I think it's a beautiful passage of how that could remind us of that. I'll read it to you. It's just a few verses. Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11. It says, Have this in mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though was in the form of God, the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So, the inspired, infinitely wise word of God, knowing that we as humans, we have questions and doubts of how something like this could be so significant, actually addresses that in this very passage. Among many other theological implications of this passage, we can see how God makes it clear that Jesus, being in the form of God, being divine, being God in flesh, He didn't reach out to any quote-unquote superpowers to be able to make it through these trials. No, rather he actually emptied himself of any of those divine qualities during these times of trial, and he became a humble servant. This humble servant ultimately would end up submitting himself to the point of death on the cross. And this, this passage, this theme of Jesus being humble, not Uh, exalting himself as divine in order to make it through any of these trials, this goes right along with the theme of Mark as we saw in the introduction to this book. Mark presents Jesus as a suffering servant. Mark 10.45 reads, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life A ransom for many. So we see how Mark makes it clear that Jesus, in His incarnation, in becoming God in flesh, didn't come to show off His divine nature or to take advantage of that, but rather to empty Himself and humble Himself and to become a servant. So it says that Jesus was then tempted by Satan. So what does that mean? As Mark omits a lot of the details, he doesn't tell us what those details were. But from the parallel passages, we do know what those temptations were. And they basically fall in three categories. The first is the lust of the body. The second would be the pride of life, egoism. And the third would be the lust of the eyes or the need or want for power, materialism. In the first temptation, Satan comes to Jesus and basically tells him, Hey, you're God, you can turn these stones into bread. You know, you're hungry, you haven't eaten. In the second temptation, Satan comes and tells him, hey, why don't you just jump off of here or this pinnacle and the angels will catch you. So you should be fine. On the third instance, given a temptation to give Jesus power during that trying time, Satan tells Jesus, hey, why don't you kneel before me? And in return for that, all the kingdoms of the world will be turned over to you right a lot of times we think how, how can that be like say not for an to Jesus well other than Satan is a liar and everything says is a lie scripture does give insight that for a time Satan has been given power over the earth right the, the prince of of this of this age of this world so Satan is basically tempting Jesus to say hey I'll I'll give it all to you right now. You could you could take over right now. And each of these temptations is basically offering a shortcut. Mm-hmm. It's offering an easy way the path of least resistance when confronted with trial and hardship. Right? The wilderness. This is what it looks like. This is real life. And sometimes we might find we might find ourselves in a place where we think that we're in the wilderness. A lot of times, our prayer is, Lord, please have this go away. And something that we see in Scripture is, well, first of all, there's actually nothing wrong with praying for God to take this away. But most times, those are not the prayers in the Bible. What we see in the in the prayers in the Bible where somebody is going through hardship. I mean, I, I overheard the lesson this morning. That the Apostle Paul didn't write and say, hey brothers, please come help me get out of here. But rather to pray so that the gospel will be proclaimed. So that people would come to know Jesus. And in doing so, that God will be glorified. So that's something to keep in mind when we are in a particular wilderness In our lives. So we know that Jesus was able to overcome each of these temptations with one main point of attack back to Satan. And that was by using the Word of God. Each time that Satan came and attacked at the most weakest moment in Jesus' life as a human, we can see the power of the Word of God at play then we see in the parallel accounts that after these accounts, after these three temptations, it says that Satan, Satan left, but only to return at another opportune time. So what does this tell us? This tells us that Satan will come, will tempt you, And even if, by God's grace, you are victorious in that particular trial, it is no time to kick back and put our feet up and say, "All right, that's done. Let us now just just cruise." Because no, because it says that Satan will come back at another opportune time. So our takeaway from here is to be on guard. Always be on guard. We also learned that Jesus was tempted, remember, in His humanity, not in His divinity. And the way in which Jesus fought off these temptations is by being in fellowship with the Holy Spirit, by quoting Scripture, by relying on the truth of Scripture is how He was able to attack back using the Word of God. Verse 14, it says, Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the Gospel of God. So now we're taken to a a place where Jesus is now over with with the time in the wilderness, and He publicly begins preaching And calling people to believe the gospel and to repent. So the time in isolation on praying and fasting was the time for him to prepare for the efficiency and the impact of his ministry that he was to begin. After his coronation, after his acknowledgement by the Father at his baptism... Of him being the Messiah, notice that Jesus didn't just willingly say, Okay, well, I'm ready, let's, let's do this, let's go out into the streets. No. There was a time of preparation where he would become empowered by the Spirit, where he would meet God by prayer and fasting. And he turns. Into this humble servant king empowered by the Holy Spirit to go and preach and call people to himself. So, again, we see a very different picture of what an earthly king would look like versus what King Jesus looks like. He went being led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness, he prepared for ministry by being in communion with the Spirit, with God the Father. And then he began his public ministry. We have this notion sometimes that after a significant spiritual growth or event, such as a baptism, such as a retreat, that we have this spiritual high and we can immediately, you know, change our lives or go and preach. But we're reminded here that like, maybe not so fast. We need a time of preparation. We need a time of meditating upon God's Word in order for our ministry, for our message, for our words to have an impact upon the people that we're going to speak to, upon the, the words that we're going to speak so that we know that those are Spirit-led and we're not just going out there willy-nilly, but that our witness would have an impact. And also so that the spiritual high doesn't just dry up, you know, after a conference, after a, a good message. And then the next day, it's like, oh man, what happened? I'm like back to my same routine again. Because we don't have that time of communion. We don't have that time of prayer and fasting. A lot of times we talk about prayer, but we often don't talk about fasting. Fasting. And we see in Scripture that many times when the people of God are in desperate need, in, de- in a desperate cry, needing for God to move, they not only go into prayer, but into fasting. In our day and age, in our culture, you know, that's like, that's crazy talk. What do you mean I can have lunch? You know, and we know that during those times, is the time for us to realize how much our body craves and needs nourishment, and it's a, it's a reminder of if my body needs that, how much more would my spirit, my soul, need to be fed and enriched, right? And we, we are like malnutrition all over the all over evangelicalism because we are not diligent and disciplined to follow the example of scripture of fasting. So may we uh, be reminded of that just by this passage here mentioning that, that Jesus fasted. So here we, uh, we see that Jesus uh, that John was arrested and now Jesus comes into the scene proclaiming the kingdom of God, the gospel. A note about the arrest of John the Baptist. Again, Mark doesn't give details here. But just to briefly state, why was John the Baptist arrested? I mean, maybe eventually he would have been arrested for preaching the gospel anyways. But he kind of cut his ministry short. And all this, right, ordained by God, is not that he necessarily did something to end it himself. But he was put in jail by Herod and Antipas who was the son of Herod the Great. So this kind of tells us that Mark here is writing a historical account. The people that he mentions, the kings and rulers that he mentions are people in in history like during, you know, to this day there's ruins and there's evidence of who Herod was. Right? And we know from the account that from the parallel account that John, John the Baptist, he rebuked Herod and Tippas for taking the wife of his brother. So this, I mean, this is punishable, but how how are you going to go up and tell the king that he's in sin? You're basically asking him to, yeah, go ahead and kill me, right? You're pronouncing your own death sentence. Nevertheless, John the Baptist uh, called him out. And he was put in jail. And then later decapitated. Because he called out the sin of of the king. And we know that when John the Baptist was in prison. He had a crisis of doubt. Right? And he sent out a messenger. To go ask. Jesus and, and his disciples hey, are you really the one? I'm not sure. I mean, I'm a prophet. I mean, Jesus calls him the last of the Old Testament prophets. You know, he's a prophet. And now I'm in jail and I'm being abused and I'm going to be killed. And his doubt was, Jesus, are you really the one? Right? So we learn here that even people that are personally used by God, when they fall into trials because of our humanity, we start to doubt. Even in our own lives, when we look back to the grace and the mercy, the favor that God has shown us over and over and over, the next time we see ourselves in a heavy trial, we start doubting again. Right? And in the greatest people in Scripture, in this case, John the Baptist, we see that John fell into the same uh, doubt because of a trial, because of of, um, him knowing that he was going to die for calling out sin. And Jesus pretty much comes back and says, He didn't plainly says, I am the one, but he says, when the Messiah comes, this and that and the other will happen. So that it's clear that John the Baptist will realize what is happening. And if that matches what Jesus says would happen, then yeah, he is the one. And he could give us assurance that even in the heaviest of trials, his promises will still stand. In the case of when John the Baptist is arrested and John the Baptist may be saying, well, I was the one proclaiming the baptism of repentance and telling people to repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. So where, who's going to do that now? So another takeaway is that Jesus himself now comes and starts doing that. So the gospel is never going to be stopped. Amen. Doesn't matter if A great man of God dies or is imprisoned or what have you. The proclamation of the true gospel will always have saints scattered across the world so that God can be glorified and accomplish His purpose. Verse 15. So it says in Jesus, and he he was saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. So what Jesus is bringing to their attention here, as he publicly is is preaching now, is that everything that the prophets preached, everything they proclaimed, everything they wrote, the promise of God to send a Savior the way to get out of the curse of a fallen humanity and be reconciled with God, it is now here. I am here. And Jesus is saying, I am the fulfillment of that. Come to me. In the ancient times, the prophets would point to someone. The rabbis would, would quote scripture and even other rabbis of higher rank than them and they will point to them. Jesus comes and says, I am. I'm the deal. And that's why I'm always reminded that Jesus unequivocally remind, reminds us and proclaimed that the scriptures, prophets, the law, Moses, Psalms, says they wrote about me. Right? So Jesus is saying the time is fulfilled and now I am here. God bringing his promise through in the most tangible manner God in flesh himself. So then he says, the kingdom of God is at hand. So what what does this mean? The essence of the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven is used interchangeably in in the New Testament. So what is it? What does it mean? A few things to note about that. What is clear is that the kingdom of God implies that there is a king. And here, the king is Jesus. Jesus, having just been coronated and declared as king, is basically plainly telling them the kingdom of God is at hand and I am the king. I am here. When Jesus was asked, Are you the King of the Jews? What did He say? Do you have said it? He, He never denied that. We also note that Jesus made it clear what this kingdom was and was not, and that this kingdom was not of this world. He says that his authority for this kingdom did not come from men, but from God. In Luke twenty-two twenty-nine, 29. He said that the entrance to this kingdom is only by new birth. When talking to, to uh, Nicodemus in John 3, 5. He also said that entrance into this kingdom entails repentance. In Matthew 3, 2. And that this kingdom is by invitation only, by divine call, in order to enter it, in 1 Thessalonians 2.12. And then we are told that we must first seek the kingdom of God and His righteousness in Matthew 6.33. And that we are to pray for the arrival of this kingdom in Matthew 6:10 Lastly the the essence of the kingdom of heaven is summed up in Romans 14:17 4, and it tells us what the kingdom is not and what it is It says the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking but Righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. So we know that this kingdom is by invitation only. How we enter it by a new birth. And that ultimately this kingdom will be fulfilled in its entirety. Once the triumphant king comes back in the second coming. For his people. But that for now. We must repent. And believe the gospel. So let's take a a quick look at that. To repent and believe. We are told. In many passages of scripture. To repent and to believe. Both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And that is basically in essence the message of the gospel to repent and to believe it Jesus himself now comes into the scene God in flesh and he's the one telling us to repent and believe the gospel so let's take a look at what that looks like to repent and believe can one have repentance without belief I mean is that even possible so let's think about it for a second in a biblical way no but maybe some people can find a way around it and claim that you can and I would say perhaps yes this is called moralism someone who would say you know I maybe believe in Jesus maybe a little bit I'm not too sure but Jesus has no authority in my life. You know, I still go around doing what I, I need to do, not really paying any attention to what Scripture would instruct me. But here's the key: I have really cleaned up my life. You know I was you know, perhaps involved in something I shouldn't have been. I maybe had left my family or what have you, and I cleaned up. You know I realized that was wrong. I'm now a good family man, I'm I'm a good father, I'm a good husband, I provide for my family, pay my taxes, etc., etc. I'm doing everything by the book. Right? Moralism. Somebody who quote-unquote repented, but they don't believe. They have no association with being identified as a follower of Christ. Repentance without belief. What about belief without repentance? Repentance. Now that could hit a little bit closer to home for us in the church. What that might look like is somebody that could say, Hey, I believe in God. I know I'm a sinner. I know I need Jesus. And everything in the outside and in public, as we would say, it passes a smell test. You know, I'm, I go to church, even go to Bible study. So I acknowledge, I have this intellectual belief of who Jesus is. I need Him. I'm a a sinner. But when it's all said and done, when I'm before God, naked as I am, as He sees me, there is no repentance. My lifestyle actually hasn't changed. Outside of the church scene, I pretty much live my own lifestyle still. So this is actually a false proclamation of faith. This is what, I always go back to the book of James. This is what the book of James warns us about. It's basically hypocrisy at its best. Belief, but nothing to show for it. No repentance. So the third way in which Jesus is coming to us and hitting us with, what we should do is the biblical way. Not moralism, not an unrepentant lifestyle, but both to repent and believe. Amen. This means what? You're walking in a certain direction, you realize that's the wrong thing to do, you acknowledge that before God, and you turn around 180 degrees and you go back the other way. You're repenting because you believe, because you have faith in what Jesus has done. You press the brakes. On your sinful lifestyle to turn the other way. And then you believe. You believe the scripture. That's why you're doing this. You believe the gospel that is presented to you by Jesus himself. So the life of a true believer inevitably will show fruit of repentance. Now, it doesn't mean that you don't sin, that you're sinless. No, we need The one who is sinless we need Jesus but it does mean that as you look at your life as a believer as having a proclamation of faith and you look back to the years maybe even months if you're a new believer and you say wow like God has surely done a work in my life I can see progress I can see fruit in my life by God's grace he has empowered me to believe and to repent And to walk in obedience with Him. This doesn't mean that we don't fall. This doesn't mean that we don't trip. But this does mean that there is fruit. And if we don't, you know, that's something that we really should consider. And maybe we should cry out to God to save me. Maybe I'm not even saved. So in summary, what this passage is telling us here. wrap this up is one is that Jesus was led by the Holy Spirit to the wilderness the wilderness is a place of isolation, of temptation of trial, of prayer of fasting and Jesus when he was tempted he conquered those temptations without utilizing his divine powers secondly we learned that Jesus Goes public with his ministry. He says that the time has been fulfilled. Right? It is now showtime. This is what the history of humanity has been waiting for. He's here. And he is saying that I have a command for you. This is for you and me to repent and to believe the gospel. This is really, if we think about it, the punchline of the whole Bible. To repent and to believe. In this case, in the Savior, the very person that is giving you this message, Jesus saying, repent and believe the gospel because the kingdom of God is at hand. So what does it mean to believe the gospel? Well, as... Sinners that we are. We know that we cannot meet. The requirement of God. To come before him. And expect him to show us. His mercy and his favor. If we come in our own merits. There's no way. But. Jesus having lived a perfect life. Having been born of a virgin. Without original sin. Having. No taint in his moral record, if you will. He lived a perfect life of obedience to the Father, to every command and every expectation that God has in order for one to be perfect. And in order for us to see God and be accepted into His kingdom and ultimately to be with Him for eternity, He demands perfection. So it doesn't matter how good we are, even in our best day, If we break in one of the commands, we're breaking the whole law. As James chapter 2 tells us. And we need a way out. We need a rescuer. We need a savior. And the way in which we get away from the wrath of God is by trusting in the perfect one, in Jesus. In his life, in his sacrifice, in his death, in his resurrection. And when we trust in that, when we put our faith in that scripture tells us that we will have a change of worldview we will have a change of mind we'll be a new creation we'll be born again and when that change takes place we then become empowered by the spirit of God into obedience into a new lifestyle and then the process of sanctification starts Day by day, by day, by week, by month, by year. Becoming more and more like Jesus. Amen. So that we can one day see Him face to face and He'll say, You are a good and faithful servant. Good job, Good. well done, right? So this is the call of Jesus. To believe in what He has done. To trust Him for our salvation. For us to be reconciled with God And by doing that, we can be eternally with him when either he comes back or when we take our last breath on this earth. So, with that, I'd like to close with an encouragement. The title of this message had the theme of temptation, repentance, and belief. In regards to temptation, Jesus was tempted, but he never fell into sin. When we are tempted, we do fall into sin many times. So we need to trust in the one that never fell. With regard to repentance, Jesus had no need for repentance. He's perfect. But He calls us to repentance. So that we can be granted His perfectness. His perfection could be attributed to our morally bankrupt record and then the aspect of belief Jesus believed in his mission he believed the father the promises of the father and was faithful until death he calls us to believe in what he already has accomplished in his mission in his death his resurrection and when Jesus calls us into his kingdom this is a call of total surrender this is a call to join his kingdom and be one of his just as a soldier will come and sign up for service this soldier knows that if called to war, he will be required to put his life on the line. How much even more, when Jesus calls us to believe and repent, the call that Jesus has is that you are to surrender completely and your life will be on the line. That's the kind of call that Jesus has for us. But we should be encouraged, knowing that in doing that, we're actually losing our life in order to gain it. And no better place that we can be, but trusting that we will fall into the arms of the Savior. That will, for sure, for this is the whole purpose of Him coming. For sure, having assurance that we that we will be with Him. When we surrender to Him completely. So that in temptation we may obey Him. So that we may repent either unto salvation for the first time or in our sanctification, continual repentance. And we do that because we believe who Jesus is and what He did for us. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your scripture. Thank you for making it known that your promises are true. Thank you for calling us into repentance and to belief in order that the righteousness of Jesus would be attributed to us. We ask that we may reflect upon this message, upon our need for continued repentance, and to be encouraged knowing that the one we're trusting on The perfect one, the Messiah, the King, Jesus, God in flesh himself, is the one who has the righteousness that we need. And that is granted to us by trusting in him. In Jesus' name, amen.